It's been a nope, not gonna play that here. Hey everyone, this is 30 Day Trek. I'm your host, Luke Cannon, and in this episode, we are covering the second episode of the second season of Star Trek Enterprise, Carbon Creek. This is the one where, upon Archer and Trip celebrating T'Pol's one-year anniversary of serving aboard the Enterprise at a private dinner, T'Pol casually drops the bombshell that the first contact between humans and the Vulcans wasn't on April 5th, 2063 in Bozeman, Montana, as seen in Star Trek First Contact, but in 1957 in the mining town of Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania, where her great-great-grandmother, Tamir, was one of three Vulcans who had to make an emergency landing on Earth and live among the citizens of Carbon Creek in cognitive for months. The other two Vulcans, Strawn and Mistral, have differing attitudes towards the humans they have to deal with. Strawn can't wait to get out of there, while Mistral is fascinated with human culture and becomes romantically interested in Maggie, the owner of the bar who employs Tamir and is raising her teenage son, Jack. Before I get into why I like this episode, I'd like to give my overall thoughts on the series. If I had one word to describe Enterprise, it would be frustrating. I had been dragging my feet on Enterprise for the longest time because of the negative reaction fans had to the series. And when I gave it a try during the aforementioned 2016 Labor Day Long Weekend Marathon on Space, now the CTV Sci-Fi Channel, the first episode I saw was Shuttle Pod 1. And I had the opposite reaction to that episode from when I saw Duet from Deep Space Nine. I didn't like any of the characters, and the episode itself felt like a tired rehash of the traditional shuttle crash episode. If this was considered to be one of the best episodes of the series, then the bar wasn't even low. It was just lying on the ground. Four years later, during the first lockdown of the pandemic, one of the many Star Trek podcasts that I listened to, Trek to Trek, began covering Enterprise along with Deep Space Nine. And since the rotation had started again on CTV Sci-Fi Channel, I decided to finally bite the bullet and watch Star Trek Enterprise. And that first season was a slog. With the exception of Dr. Phlox and T'Pol, I didn't like any of the characters. While I would grow to like them, with the exception of Reed, who I thought was a boring character from beginning to end and who I did not buy as any kind of ladies' man whatsoever, the first season did not do anything to endear them to me. I think Archer has the crappiest backstory of any of the captains we've seen in Star Trek, when your primary motivation is... I'm pissed off at the Vulcans because they held my father's work back. It doesn't really inspire confidence where you're about to boldly go where no man has gone before. The characterization of the Vulcans as passive-aggressive dicks didn't work for me at all. The temporal Cold War arc, if you could call it that, went absolutely nowhere. And you can tell that between the very heteronormative cast who kept shoving Hoshi and Mayweather aside, the retreading of familiar plots that felt like third-generation Xerox copies of Berman-era episodes, and the decon gel scenes that were the most nakedly crass ratings ploy to get the dude bros watching, this was the Trek team just being tired and spinning its wheels. And Berman and Braga have admitted that they should have had a one-year break in between the end of Voyager and the beginning of Enterprise in order to recharge their creative batteries. And I do not blame the fans at this point in the franchise's history deciding to bail. The only real bright spot of that first season was the Andorian incident, with the introduction of Shran, the Andorian played by Jeffrey Combs, who became the pinch hitter of the series. Other than that, I thought the first season of Enterprise was the worst first season of any Star Trek series, past and present. 
Which is why when we got to season 2, while that season also had a lot of bland and terrible episodes, there were some glimmers in there that showed that the creative team was starting to get a better handle on the series. And Carbon Creek was, for me, the turning point when the show finally got interesting. Yes, the episode was doing the traditional Stranger in a Strange Land, Fish Out of Water plotline, but the fact that it was three Vulcans instead of three humans automatically makes it more compelling. And while the episode does the beats that you would expect of the outsider alien race looking at humanity on display as it was in the 1950s with the launch of Sputnik and the height of the Red Scare and seeing both the good and bad in humanity, maybe because of how tired and lackluster that first season was, this episode felt like a breath of fresh air, that they finally got an idea worth exploring and did it in a fun, creative way. As for the episode itself, this was the second episode that aired, but the first that was produced. Due to the complexity of the Shockwave Part 2 premiere, a period piece with only one of the main cast members playing a different character for the majority of the episode must have seemed easy by comparison. And speaking of Jolene Blaylock, here she shines not only as T'Pol as she shows off a more playful side while still maintaining her measured Vulcan demeanor, but also as her great-great-grandmother Tamir as she slowly comes around to seeing the appeal and potential of humans, so much so that she brings the alien technology of Velcro to a patent office in order to get enough money for Jack to go to college. And in case of you were wondering, Velcro was invented in 1955 by George Mistral, which is where the name of the Vulcan who decides to stay on Earth got his name from, which is a nice little nod. Another nod in the episode are to two classic television series that Star Trek forever owes a debt to. During the dinner, when T'Pol tells her story, Trip makes the comment that this sounds like an episode of The Twilight Zone, which I love because as big of a Star Trek fan as I am, I'm also a huge fan of The Twilight Zone. Rod Serling most definitely cleared a path for creatives like Gene Rottenberry to pitch their own sci-fi series as allegory shows. But the other more significant nod is when Mistral at one point says... I Love Lucy is on, which is a nod to the fact that the one person who was responsible for Star Trek existing today is Lucille Ball. For those of you who don't know, Star Trek was developed and produced at Desilu, the production company owned and operated by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. When the board of executives passed on the original The Cage pilot, Lucille Ball, as head of the company, vetoed that decision. So while Majel might be referred to as the first lady of Star Trek, and DC Fontana helped to develop Spock, the Vulcans, and a lot of world-building elements... I think that the title of First Lady of Star Trek should go to Lucille Ball. And that reference to I Love Lucy is a nice wink to the Star Trek origins. As for the rest of the episode, I'd like to give a shout out to Anne Cusack. And in case you're wondering, yes, she is the sister to both John and Joan. She's another veteran character actor who you've probably seen on one of your favorite shows. Her first role was as one of the ball players in A League of Their Own, but I know her from her one-two punch of prestige cable dramas as she played Judge Munt in the season two premiere Fargo and who crushes her one scene in that episode opposite Kieran Culkin at the Waffle Hut, and then in a recurring role in the first three seasons of Better Call Saul as Chuck McGill's ex-wife. She's someone who I always perk up when I see her because I know she's going to do a lot with a little. And as for how the episode ends with Archer and Trip trying to determine if this story is true, and to Paul in her quarters with the handbag, it leaves the episode on a wonderfully ambiguous note. Is T'Pol's story true or not? And is the handbag her great-grandmother's, or is Tamir really T'Pol herself? To quote Rod Serling, the answer is, it doesn't make any difference. 
This is just a wonderful story that helps to give texture to one of the better characters on the series and showed fans that their investment in the series would be worth it. Do you realize you've just rewritten our history books? A footnote at best. Footnote? It, this is like finding out Neil Armstrong wasn't the first man to walk on the moon. Perhaps he wasn't. Oh. How long did this Mastral stay on Earth? The rest of his life, presumably. And that would be what? Another 100, 150 years? Possibly longer. <laughs> An alien is left on Earth in the 1950s, lives through what, 30 presidents, travels the world, and no one notices him? And what happened when he finally kicked the bucket? Did the Undertaker just shrug and ignore his ears? You asked me to tell you a story. <laughs> it was a good one. But did it really happen? As I said, you asked me to tell you a story. Damn, Captain. She put one over on us. You did go to Carbon Creek. If you check my record, you'll note that I also visited Yellowstone Park and the Carlsbad Caverns. I'm a scientist. That includes geology. Thank you for the meal. Uh, my pleasure. You've certainly kept us entertained. Good night. Join me tomorrow when we look at another Season 2 episode of Enterprise, one that has more relevance to today and is the episode where I finally bought Archer as an actual captain. Live long and prosper, and also, live well. Mm -hmm.